Hi, I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern-Laugh. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Micah Pollack. Dr. Pollack is Professor of Educational Studies and Director of the Center for Research on Educational Equity, Assessment, and Teaching Excellence at the University of California, San Diego. Her most recent book is School Talk, Rethinking What We Say About and To Students Every Day. Welcome, Micah. Thank you. You created a project and website called Us Versus Hate. What is Us Versus Hate and what's it designed to do? Us Versus Hate is uh, what we call an anti-hate messaging project led by educators and students. And it's designed to amplify and uplift youth voice against hate, which we're defining in the project as treating people as if their identity makes them an inferior type of person. So we started designing it after the Charlottesville rally a number of years ago, and also to react to a post-2016 election spike in incidents of explicit bigotry and sort of unleashed harassment along various identity group lines in school settings, K-20, meaning college campuses as well across the country. And, uh, you know, bigotry, racism is not new in the United States, nor in our schools is it new, but we had seen nationally and many folks had been tracking and educators had been reporting a, a spike in kind of unleashed bigotry on school campuses. And Us Versus Hate is designed to invite young people with teachers to study issues of bias, and inequality and what we're calling hate forms, racism, xenophobia, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, etc. And to make public messages for their school communities against hate that then get entered into a broader contest and amplified on social media and nationally, as well as recreated into products sent back to participating schools. So it's a designed to be an on-ramp for what we're calling anti-hate work. And by that, we mean into the ongoing exploration of the deep ideas and inequality systems under this current explosion of explicit bigotry. So that's what Us Versus Hate is trying to be about, is an anti-hate messaging project supporting teachers with, with lessons and resources, but also encouraging uh, most of all youth to lift their voices up publicly. What kinds of impacts have you seen in classrooms and schools that have implemented the project? We have seen a lot of really exciting results. Um, we wanted to see if the anti-hate on-ramp, as I've been calling it, would invite deep inquiry as well as really immediately bring young people into speaking their minds on the issues of our time. We've seen all of the above happen in the sense of, you know, teachers really appreciating uh, the ability to add public messaging to existing deep units they already had going on the Holocaust or on U.S. racism or on immigration explored in deep ways, but to have a, an invitation to young people to make public products, public messages at the end of such units has been really welcome to educators. We've seen students sort of at the other end of the spectrum having a lot of things they want to say publicly 
even just after looking at the usversushate.org website without any lessons, without any deep curriculum, but young people just really appreciating the invitation to say things publicly against hate and you know, for inclusion and opportunity. We've seen um, sort of goal of the project is not only to amplify youth voices and to give resources and an invitation to teachers, but also to unite school communities in that particularly you know, divided era. And we have seen school assemblies happen. We've seen the hashtag be used to really inspire young people to feel a sense of connection to others in their school community. And so we've seen a really exciting, I think the anti-hate frame and its pros and cons is something we've been thinking about as a research team that's also designing the project as we go with students and educators and really thinking about how the anti-hate on-ramp allows for young people to sort of enter this work at different levels, so to speak. So there are some young people who are ready immediately to speak their minds on xenophobia because they've been experiencing it and thinking about it and living it. There are other young people, particularly young children who enter uh, the work under the umbrella of sort of more general inclusion messaging, everyone belongs meanness is a form of weakness, kind of the, the um, using the anti-hate invitation to speak their minds on including everybody in a school community. And so it's been really lovely to see how when an invitation is offered young people and teachers, how, how ready people are to participate in, in what we're calling anti-hate work. So picking up on that and on these ideas of on-ramps and invitations to deeper inquiry, you know, most people will deny that they hate another group. So what are some of the ways that Us Versus Hate concretely helps teachers to deepen the conversation? What are some examples that you've seen happen? Right. I think we're using the anti-hate on-ramp precisely because hate is not something anybody wants to defend. And so it's a sort of invitation for all to, as we put it, consider what it means to, to treat all people as equally valuable. It's an on-ramp that we've seen people be able to take in schools of varying demographics, varying, uh, you know, sort of political divides. And so that's precisely why we're using the anti-hate frame as an on-ramp is because of its kind of universal appeal, even as we also then invite people into the deeper work of, of grappling not only with lessons that we have two lesson lists, one that's about uh, building an inclusive school community and, and a second that's directing people's attention to grappling with specific hate forms, so to speak. And so we're seeing that some educators start with lessons that are about being allies generally rather than bystanders and then inviting youth messaging and youth themselves then take it deeper to say public things against homophobia or public things against racism and they and youth deep in the work. We're also seeing that with the sort of lesson collections that we have on more specific forms of hate, bias, and injustice, that teachers who might start with a group of fourth graders talking about hate in general, then seek uh, you know, a film from Teaching Tolerance, teaching about the civil rights movement, and all of a sudden they're working with their fourth graders talking about how youth have participated in the past to change society through, you know, standing up for civil rights. And so we, we're seeing people take the on-ramp 
which is designed to be a sort of, you know, take this project where you want and need to take it locally kind of project, we're seeing people go deep with the work when invited to. And another thing I would point out that's been really exciting about Us Versus Hate is that a message created by a young person in one community can spark deeper thinking by a young person in, in, a, in another part of, of the region. We started it in San Diego or another part now of, of the country. So we've seen students say that, you know, seeing a message that a young person, a 10th grader in San Diego made a several years ago that says being Mexican is not a crime, that seeing that message prompted them to, you know, think more deeply about the inclusion of all populations, whether they be immigrants, whether they be, uh, you know, born in the United States, but that seeing a youth voice or hearing a youth voice pushing the conversation deeper encourages next youth to do that. And so that's a, a really exciting aspect, I think, of this project is the public voice piece of it. Have there been student messages or memes that have surprised you? That's a really great question. I have been, um, I would say, surprised overall by kind of how pithy and just to the point youth can be. I often, you know, as someone who is very deep into anti-racism and is also a very sort of self-critical practitioner of it in the sense that, that I'm always asking myself about the pros and cons of what I'm saying and the way I'm going after pursuing anti-racism or equity effort. And in fact, I bake that same self-critical orientation into every book I write for teachers and ask, invite other people to join me in it. I often do what I call, or what many people call, you know, sort of three-dimensional chess, or maybe for me, it's 10-dimensional chess about my different moves and the way I talk. And young people have this ability to get right to the point and make messages that just capture things that need to be said. And so as one example, a, I believe also a fourth grader in this case made a winning message after a, a unit that apparently was about athletes speaking up for justice in sports made a message that youth voted a winner and we turned it into a into a sticker and it has an image of a seemingly a young woman in in a hijab and it simply says in kind of childlike writing we've got your back and there was something about that image that sort of cut right to the chase and said what needed to be said you know similarly to i believe a kindergartner may have been a first grader making one of our first winning messages that simply said, everyone belongs. And the way the child drew it had a sort of circle of multicolored people. And there was something about, in a, in a sort of heart-shaped world in the middle, and there was something about the image that just put it out there. Everyone belongs. And it was a sort of insistent call for including everybody in a, in a diverse community or nation. And they just cut right to the chase. And so I've been really surprised by young people's ability to do that. You were talking about how messages from one part of the country can impact elsewhere and also how teachers find themselves going in different directions once the on-ramp is leading, you know, into those kind of places. What kind of resources does, does Us Versus Hate provide as teachers are doing this? So if somebody finds themselves exploring something that they hadn't necessarily thought a lot about before. Um, what do you recommend that they do? Yeah, I, I curated 
with the help of some educator colleagues, spent a long time curating resources from almost 20 national educator support organizations that fill our, our lesson lists that I've already described, but also a number of professional development resources that range from great tools for norm setting at the beginning of dialogues, for uh, sparking and then facilitating conversations about particular fraught topics. We also, I created definitions and concepts tools that helped, you know, sort of lead people and encourage people to read foundational resources and also to continue learning. I mean, so a big sort of orientation of Us Versus Hate is, you know, we cannot let hate just go. So we're going to stand up now. At the same time, this is an ongoing quest to learn and go deeper and work throughout our lives on these issues. And so this is not a one-off experience. This is an on-ramp to ongoing work. I think another core tension that tried to navigate in this project is must stand up now, but also, you know, wait to stand up until you're prepared to do so. I mean, it's just sort of a core tension. You know, we don't want to do harm when we broach fraught topics in classrooms and, you know, we're underprepared on talking through issues of race and racism. And here we, you know, go down the rabbit hole of a conversation we're not ready for. On the other hand, uh, this is, I think, particularly noticeable in an era when explicit unleashed bigotry is exploding. Just because we're anxious about engaging certain topics does not mean we should be letting racism roll uninterrupted in our in our schools. And in fact, you know, what I've worked on for most of my career is the daily forms of racism that we too often let roll uninterrupted in our schools in terms of opportunity provision and how students are treated by adults. But particularly with slurs, you know, rolling through our hallways, educators cannot sort of wait until they're, they have doctoral degrees in, you know, race and racism studies to start in grappling with um, the issues of our time and issues affecting young people and, uh, and adults on a daily basis in our society. And so we see this, that's why I like the idea of an on-ramp uh, in that it's, you know, a structured invitation to join work that then continues. You are then on the highway with many people and uh, this is an ongoing quest to pursue getting better at addressing these issues in schools. Michael, what does the, the on-ramp look like in high school or college? And that's another great question. We have actually been trying us versus hate at the university level on our own campus at UC San Diego. And in that case, we're seeing instructors add a public messaging invitation to deeper curriculum that they've already, they're already in the middle of offering in the form of their course, rather than a single lesson that would then, you know, prompt messaging, which is, you know, and we're seeing then that similarly in, in college classrooms, young people, I mean, now we'll call, you know, college students are rarely asked to speak publicly on the issues they're learning about inside a classroom. And so even deep thinking, you know, critical analysis happening inside the room is not then often invited to be shared outside that room. And so that I think is the exciting, the exciting ad that a project like Us Versus Hate gives the higher education realm. We also have had community college students participating in Us Versus Hate since the beginning. And in fact, in some of our earliest uh, participants in winning messages and it's, it's really beautiful to see, you know, older students continue to 
you know, the messaging goes deeper. It can be, you know, in some cases kind of, uh, you know, it's tackling harder hitting issues, but young people, given the invitation, younger students are ready to tackle those issues as, as well. They just do it in, in, in a way comfortable to them. So we've seen it have kind of a, a, a K-20 potential. And in high schools, I mean, you were just talking about colleges, but what are some examples from high schools? In high schools, we have seen, I think, really interesting results where, for example, one of, one of the partners I'm thinking about right now is a high school English teacher from a community closer to the border in our region and taught a very deep unit on the Holocaust, but also on deep issues of voice and standing up against injustice when it is in one's own community and in one's own lifetime. And then invited us versus hate messaging and her students took it, took that on-ramp to address a wide range of different issues. We, that from that classroom, we got being Mexican isn't a crime. We got a message saying we are all human that had sort of beautiful um, array of um, sort of signaling diverse identities in, in a, in, inside uh, a human figure. We had an, uh, what a young person, another young person called an intersectional message that tackled Black Lives Matter and feminism and sort of homophobia in the same message. We had, uh, when you, I think it was called, when you fight for equality, fight for everyone was another message from that community. And there was another student who made a message against sex discrimination in wages. And so we, we saw from this sort of deep, um, deep lesson in this case, but also I think the sort of broad umbrella of the invitation to make public messaging on a uh, hate form or a sort of anti-hate message of your choice, we saw young people raising their voices to address a really wide range of social issues. So I think that's one thing we've seen in the high school level from this project. How, how did teachers or schools become involved in Us Versus Hate? We worked really hard to make usversushate.org a site that people could find and sort of uh, from that join the effort without any training, without any um, program they had to buy, but could sort of join almost a movement easily. So that's one way people have been joining the work. We also are adding this year a aspect of the work that, that I have been trying to add to my work on anti-racism with educators generally, which is the informal dialogue of folks supporting one another as they do this work. And so we will be you know, scheduling a lot of what we're calling meetups over the course of this year where people trying us versus hate, but also people you know, taking other on-ramps that I've designed, for example, using my book School Talk for professional development or small group reading where they work, but to, to, to shepherd and support a group of educators actually applying that book in change effort where they work. So that's another way to get involved in these efforts is to join a informal support community. And I've been using my Facebook group called School Talking to invite people into those kinds of dialogues. Does an entire school need to get involved with Us Versus Hate or can a teacher or a small group of teachers implement the program? 
To date, it's actually mostly been individual teachers or small groups of teachers who have found the work exciting and decided to join it. We all know in our field that deep change happens when more people who share a school or who share a system do work together. And we have uh, one district in our region that has expressed interest in joining us versus hate as a district, which I think is an incredibly exciting concept because then the us becomes the entire district uniting against hate and for inclusion and opportunity. But we have not yet framed it and will not frame it as a sort of required top-down project. It's, it's been a, a voluntary excitement-driven project to date. So some teachers who want to implement us versus hate may find themselves in a school that doesn't want to talk about these issues or opposes the messages. Do you have suggestions for how these teachers can initiate us versus hate conversations and activities? That's also an excellent question. The, you know, the anti-hate on-ramp is once again designed precisely to sort of offer a universal portal into grappling with these issues. Again, it's hard for a community to decide that it's pro-hate. And so, you know, the anti-hate on-ramp is designed with that in mind. It's also designed to neutralize any concerns about addressing these issues being a partisan endeavor, because again, um, including all members of school communities is really educators' basic job is, and, and sort of ethical imperative. And so I think we are, we're in a moment where there are some really interesting and important dynamics happening with folks, in a sense, trying to frame such work as a partisan endeavor. But I think it's, it's, it's crucial that we continue to calmly say that including all members of communities is in fact not partisan, it's, it's simply our job. So I think some of the sort of calm, of course this is what we do, of course we are about valuing all human beings equally, of course we are an anti-hate community, that these, these kinds of um, basic ethical descriptions of ethical norms and values I think are, are a really important starting place. So those are, those are some of my reactions to your question. I think another interesting point is that, as I've already said, we designed this sort of anti-hate on-ramp to invite youth voice on everything from kindness to inclusion to anti-bullying to tackling homophobia and anti-Semitism. And so what's been, I think, really important is that youth voices then sort of live as a collection, as a, as a collectivity of messages such that a, you know, message against homophobia lives alongside a message calling for inclusion overall or refusing bullying as something, of course, schools should be doing. And so that's, I think, another way of making this work possible in schools is sort of in, inviting all of these efforts under the common umbrella of, of refusing hate. Many students are attending school remotely right now because of the pandemic. Have you been able to adapt the Us Versus Hate program for online or hybrid schooling? Yes, we found that, you know, the invitation to speak your mind and use your voice and make a message in any media, and I should have stressed at the beginning that us versus eight messages are invited in any medium. Uh, it, and so we've had 
poster and sticker type images created. We've also had TED Talks and op-eds and poetry and spoken word and uh, PSAs and all kinds of forms of messaging. And those are things that we've seen young people be able to make at home. There is always the equity issue of who has art supplies and the ability to make sort of gorgeous messaging in visual form, but with phones and with, you know, sort of the ubiquity now of making things for social media, many more young people have the tools at their disposal to make messages that they want to make. And that can happen in a COVID uh, remote schooling era. And we've also seen some school communities really need some hook for bringing people, young people back into community. Uh, we had a educator we talked to in rural Texas who, you know, really appreciated the project in late spring this past year in sort of COVID shutdown uh, pandemic mode to sort of pull young people back into a feeling of community. And so uh, I would say a really interesting and important issue that we will be, I think, thinking through this year with educators, particularly in these meetups, is the issue of what it's like to teach these issues remotely in that, I think in an unprecedented way, families are in the room when we are teaching now in the K-12 space. And so what does that mean when a district or a classroom, for example, has committed to curriculum that refuses homophobia or transphobia as in um, one of the districts we talked to in Wisconsin, for example, which really had district-wide professional development on issues of you know, chosen pronouns and re refusing homophobia and transphobia, et cetera. What is it like to talk through those lessons when families are right there in the room? And so I think um, it, it raises this issue of kind of the always existing triangle or, you know, we've talked about it in my research group as maybe a square or some larger shape, but the teacher, the student, the family, the administrator, and then various other stakeholders who are all kind of involved in how a teacher teaches a fraught subject. And so I think in a remote era, those dynamics will be on overdrive. And, you know, we're already seeing, I don't know if you've seen these controversies Teaching Tolerance just tweeted about one of them uh, yesterday, where a, a teacher, I believe also in Texas, had made a Zoom background with lots of inclusive images and sent it out excitedly to all of her students. And somebody in the community got a forward of it and it blew up into a teacher being put on administrative leave for, you know, fraught images where, once again, to a teacher, having a rainbow on the wall of the classroom, or, you know, importantly, even saying Black Lives Matter was not a fraught thing to do. It was simply saying all people are equally valuable and Black lives also matter. And so to, to we're in this moment where our debates over what to some are just basic inclusion, our job, what we do, uh, and to others are, you know, some kind of, you know, third rail, highly fraught effort. Uh, we're in a moment where those dynamics are now kind of in overdrive. So is that, I mean, with those examples, have you been able to figure out yet ways of responding in sort of a coordinated format 
to be able to give support to people who find themselves in those situations? We have tried, you know, I've tr- I, I, I think the quest to figure out how to link people in dialogue that is also confidential is a, is a real nut to crack in that I've tried to, you know, I have a Facebook group. It has a thousand plus people on it now. And it's much easier for people to weigh in on situation in other people's systems than it is to talk, you know, with their name on it about a system in a situation in their own system. So then that leads to the need for confidential meetups, which then leads to the need for small group meetups, which then leads to sort of an unscalable, you know, need to talk uh, in very small groups of people over time. And so I'm really trying to crack that nut with, with other educators, because I really believe in that, you know, in, in the deep need for personal, interpersonal dialogue on issues, you know, in my work, particularly of anti-racism and its potholes and, and its the pros and cons, as I said earlier, of different ways of taking action. And that's really done more easily in small groups. But a lot of people, you know, ideally, they would form those small groups where they work and do that work where they live. But I think there's also a need for people to talk with folks outside their systems. And so I've been trying to figure out how to participate in supporting, uh, meeting that need. Well, as usual, schools are reflections of the larger society. I mean, we're seeing workers in uh, Whole Foods with Black Lives Matter face masks being laid off because they refused to change them. And how have the, the Black Lives protests influenced the conversations in schools participating in us versus hate? We, uh, will, we will be seeing that as the, the fall begins. I would say I have been seeing that more in the realm of anti-racism work generally and folks that I've connected to through the broader work I do on anti-racism in schools. You know, and that's an umbrella that includes us versus hate. But in the world of, for example, uh, professional development of educators and by educators on issues of race and racism, I think there is a, uh, you know, obviously there has been an explosion of anti-racist book lists and then a sort of important counter narrative saying that, of course, book lists are, are not enough and moving to action is, is the key here. And then a, an important um, counter to that saying, well, you know, we need to not jump immediately if we're not fully thinking through these issues to action because maybe, you know, we need to uh, continue to check ourselves and read and, and go deeply. And so it's this, I think we're in a really important moment where, you know, more educators than ever have, have taken different on-ramps and been reading books and in book groups and in summer professional development and giant webinars and, um, uh, you know, using Twitter to share resources. And there's a lot more people doing work on race and racism in education, thanks to this, the movement for Black Lives and the Black Lives Matter protests and calls for justice that, that have been so important in the last months. I think the field is now going to be asking the question that we, many of us have been asking for a long time, which is how do we, how do we move to the implementation of a book group or, you know, deep action in schools and systems. And I have found it really interesting. Um, you know, a lot of the points I'm making here have been, you know, ones I've been grappling with, with my doctoral students and, and teams of folks and thinking a lot about, you know, how even in using very action-oriented 
books, like ones I myself have crafted as on-ramps, it still is possible to just kind of read a book and then not take action where one works. And, you know, my books are filled with action assignments and action plans. And even then, I think there's such often limited time given to this work in schools, but also I think just kind of a sense of reading being enough and reading being the work that we often don't push ourselves to that next step in the anti-racism world of pursuing real change where we work. And so um, one thing I did this summer was craft a sort of scaffold that I'm calling an anti-racist equity action planner that literally has open boxes on it saying, okay, what step am I going to take now? Okay, I just read this chapter. What's a principle and strategy and try tomorrow I take from it right now? What will I, who will I next talk to in my system about this idea? But trying to sort of force ourselves to apply. And, you know, of course, the, the higher ed field is just as guilty, if not more so, of, you know, reading, reading and not applying. And so um, I think that's the moment we're in after we've had a really important summer of demands for anti-racist learning. So speaking of what happens in schools as workplaces, you've done a lot of work on language that teachers use in schools, including in school talk. How does the language that teachers use casually, say in a faculty lounge, for example, how does that impact student lives? One of the points I make when I uh, start professional development on school talk is to, uh, I think it's a point I make in, you know, the second paragraph of the book or something, but it's that talk is action. I think that we have a um, really important script in the field born of a frustration of just talking, talking, and then never taking action, which is what we were just discussing together, uh, that says, you know, can we stop talking and just take some action? And I understand completely that frustration. And as I've said, uh, you know, what we mean by that is dialogue about steps we should take that then we never take. So I understand, you know, the sort of talk versus action binary. But the point I'm trying to make in school talk is to demonstrate how, how communication has consequences. It, it, it actually is an action that shapes student lives. And, you know, one of the questions I often ask educators that is also in the beginning of school talk as a think discuss question is to ask people to think about a communication from their own k-12 past that fundamentally shaped their lives and from that simple invitation you really do hear um, stories of you know on the one hand single communications that shape trajectories where somebody was told that they weren't a math person or that they shouldn't apply to a top college because they were Latina or that they were not that smart and um, where, where people really got tracked away from opportunity in those moments and with real implications for student lives. There are other ways in the book that I demonstrate how uh, communication has real consequences. You know, what happens when people are talking about you know, whether the school should hire more college counselors. And somebody says, you know, folks from this community are really not college oriented. These are not families that really are committed to learning, which is a, you know, a script that happens across the country that is deeply harmful to youth and families because resource decisions pivot on those assumptions and, and statements about communities. 
The book also addresses how a failure to communicate or, or gaps in our talk can be harmful to young people, such as when you know, data displays never ever launch conversations about youth's full skill sets or moments when uh, nobody has really tracked whether Jake has completed all of his credits for graduation. I mean, that there are gaps in our communications that are, really do hurt young people and that often play out along race class lines, gender lines, national origin or uh, lines of, of one's first language. And so there are all kinds of race, racism, equity issues embedded in our daily communications. And School Talk is trying to get people's attention on that, both so that nobody can say, oh, you know, racism or equity work isn't my thing. That's what, that's what the specialist on uh, race and equity does, or that's the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion folks, you know, wheelhouse. I'm trying to demonstrate that this work is everybody's work because everybody talks and everybody fails to communicate in some really consequential ways in schools. And so it's our hook in this project is getting people to think critically about how we talk in schools. Do you find the language of ethics at all helpful in discussing language? I think Ethics has, I, I would say, has been an issue embedded in all of my work, even while I don't use the word as sort of the frame for what I do. You know, I, I work on ethics. But I would say that all of the work I've ever done that is demonstrating how young people can be supported better and making the argument that they should be is, is, F, is, is work that's, that's all about ethics. And so, you know, Everyday Anti-Racism as a project uh, from 2008, a book that I edited with, with uh, contributions from about you know, 70 scholars. I asked them to pinpoint a, an action for an educator to grapple with, an everyday action of anti-racism that followed from their scholarship. And I would say that each one of those short essays that asks educators to think self-critically about the pros and cons of their actions and and to ensure that their everyday actions move young people toward opportunity instead of away from it, that's a deeply ethical request. And it's all about asking educators to support young people rather than harm them. And I've, I have done a lot of work, you know, in designing these on-ramps, whether it's everyday anti-racism or school talk or us versus hate, to almost design each invitation to teachers as, you know, kind of, of course you can, of course you're going to do this, right? Of, of course this is important to do and necessary to do. And of course you're going to join this with me and with us. But there's a, there's a deep ethical, you know, there is a values orientation under that in that, to me, I, that participating in anti-racism is, is an ethical thing. It's, it's ethically preferable to participating even passively in racism. And so, yes, it's a deeply ethical quest I'm on. It, it strikes me as very Deweyan. I mean, you're encouraging teachers and students to think about the impacts of everything that they say and do, which is... Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of my work has been pitched at, you know, the educator being self-critical and asking these deep ethical questions of, of themselves 
about the pros and cons of our actions as adults who have you know, real power over the lives of, of young people. Us versus hate brings me back into the terrain of engaging youth themselves in these ethical questions. And, you know, each us versus hate message is in, in a sense a, an ethical public statement about how, how human beings should be treated. And I'm excited as, you know, one next move to try to pinpoint aspects of the on-ramps I've designed for adults, the books I've written for educators, Everyday Anti-Racism is an edited project, but School Talk that I wrote myself, and trying to find chunks of them that can prompt, that can be youth facing, and that can prompt, be read by, by K-12 students, and bring them into, you know, this dialogue with peers, but also with educators about the everyday experiences they have in schools. So I, I am excited about, about uh, that next step to bring youth directly into this, into the dialogue. What role do principals play in creating an environment that encourages anti-racist language and, and actions? I think a huge role. Uh, one of the things I did this summer was host informal meetups among school leaders. I did sort of role-alike gatherings, school leaders, teacher leaders, system leaders, and often it was people who run diversity equity offices and districts and then sort of parent leaders. And it was, uh, it was really uh, valuable to me to talk with school leaders about their role in this. A lot of my work has been about supporting educators, sort of no matter of their context, to you know, have tools to uh, do anti-racist work in their classrooms or with a few colleagues, or as I said, Us Versus Hate is designed to afford really powerful work to be done even in one classroom. But in talking to the school leaders and system leaders, and also in uh, you know, ongoing research I've been doing with doctoral students at UCSD, it's been really important to think more about the role of school and system leaders, because of course, when the you know, tone is set and the expectations for application are set by leaders, then it's just a million times more likely that you know, deeper anti-racist or pro-equity or anti-hate work gets done. So uh, you know, often it really is in the hands of, for example, a school leader to bring an entire faculty into reading and applying anti-racism texts as opposed to just the tiny team of the willing. And it's on that school leader to figure out what to do with the people with their arms crossed in the back of the room who really don't want to be there. And it's, it's on that school leader to figure out how to, as one uh, new colleague from these meetups put it, give the bennies or the benefits to the excited in a school so that they are the ones rewarded for leading work that make them the reticent colleagues want to join it. We're seeing in some of these, you know, the, the, the sort of controversies I mentioned earlier of you know a teacher being put on admin leave because somebody complained about a inclusion message on her wall we're seeing the massive role of the school leader or above the school leader the system leader who is setting the tone for you know pro inclusion messages being something we do in this school in this district and so uh, i think system school and system leaders have a huge role to play even as we want to keep empowering individual educators and small groups of educators who want to do work. 
You've thought a lot about the communication between teachers and parents. What are the most essential elements of successful homeschool communication? School Talk has a final chapter called Opportunity Talk, where I delve into, I think, a really crucial aspect of parent-school communication, which is ongoing two-way dialogue about improving opportunities in schools. I think a lot of times families are treated as, uh, at best, sort of recipients of one-way information from schools, and there are a million equity giant, you know, sort of structural cracks in communication along race, class, and language lines where wealthier, whiter families uh, have more access to knowledge about opportunity and are the ones who know how to get into AP classes and are the ones who get information about internships available and then, you know, as, as many colleagues have worked on in our field, hoard opportunities. And so, you know, even broadening access to communications about opportunities available in a sort of one-way manner from school is, is key along lines of race, class, language etc. But we often also fail to have two-way dialogues where we ever listen to parents about how they, you know, hope schools could be improved or how they could participate in offering their funds of knowledge to schools. And so chapter seven of School Talk is all about sort of designing, you know, almost channels or mechanisms for two-way communications, equal status communications between family and school. Maggie, is there anything you'd like to add that we haven't talked about? I don't think so right now. I've really appreciated this conversation and the, the um, deep questions that you have asked. And I guess I would just, maybe I would just add that, you know, I am a constant learner myself and so deeply appreciate all of the folks who have contributed to, you know, even the many ideas that I've shared today, the doctoral student teams I've been working with at UCSD, the educators who have participated for years now in Us Versus Hate, people who uh, have been using School Talk and, and uh, working with me on this next step of insisting on application with that book. But I, every idea I put forth has many voices in it. So I just want to voice a appreciation to all the folks who I've learned from and continue to learn from. Well, thank you so much, Michael Pollack of UC San Diego. And thank you listeners for joining us. We're posting transcripts of our interviews to make it easy to pull audio clips for classes and workshops. Let us know how you've incorporated ideas from our podcast or blog, or if there are topics you'd like to hear more about. Email us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. Contact us if you're interested in professional development on social-emotional learning with a focus on ethics for schools or after-school programs in the New York City area. Check out prior episodes and articles on ethicalschools.org or on Facebook and Twitter at Ethical Schools and Instagram. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denti. Till next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.